Hello. You're listening to Byzantine Dreams with Carolyn and Michael. In this episode, we're calling into Cape Town, South Africa, to speak with our friend and former colleague, Simon Delarubier, one of the earliest Ethereum developers and all-around crypto renaissance man. So Simon is perhaps best known for writing the initial ERC-20 spec in 2015, laying the seeds for the Ethereum ICO boom in 2017. But few may know, he was initially radicalized by Dogecoin. (laughs) Simon's also a writer and an artist who helped create some of the most provocative and influential crypto economic primitives over the past half decade, including meme markets, token bonding curves, and token curated registries. We wanted to speak with Simon for our second episode for a few reasons. We just passed Ethereum's fifth birthday and the crypto economic space in general wouldn't be what it is today without Simon. He brought Ethereum tokens as we know them to the world and his perspective from that experience is really crucial grounding as we head into another round of token frothiness. Another reason we want to talk to Simon is to switch up the perspective. There's a lot of Bitcoin versus Ethereum beef on crypto Twitter these days. We felt like giving some airtime to an Ethereum pioneer and iterator would be a great balance after our tour of duty with Jameson on guns, germs, and Bitcoin, and our crash course there on resilience-first systems. Lastly, you'll hear at different points in this conversation, sirens in the background. Carolyn and I were back and forth, but decided to leave those in. We're halfway through 2020, and it is still insane here in New York City. We wanted to leave this in as a reminder of what's going on in the streets. Without delay, here's the second episode of Byzantine Dreams with Simon de la Riviere. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Byzantine Dreams. Today, we've got Simon de la Riviere, who is an old colleague of mine, an old friend, and an OG in the crypto space. I think he's been around since about 2014, and he's still here, calling in from Cape Town, South Africa. Hey, Simon. Hi, Karen. Uh, nice to nice to speak again. So, usually the way we kick these off, um, great to hear a little bit about you for our listeners. I think folks out there have probably heard of a lot of the things that you helped pioneer, that you've built, ERC-20 tokens and Ethereum being one of them. There's countless others. would love to hear your story from your your words. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as, uh, as Karen mentioned, I've been in the blockchain space for about six years now, since about actively since 2014 um actually i started coding in bitcoin in 2013 mm-hmm. during that time i've uh, i found bitcoin and the, sort of the crypto space because i saw this potential to give agency to people that didn't necessarily have access to traditional financial infrastructure and during a lot of my time in the space like i've also been a creator myself so i've i've spent a lot of time in the creative industries you know, I, I, I make music. Uh, I'm a writer as well. I used to make games in, in high school. I make websites while I was at university. Um, and a lot of the difficulty I face as the creator felt like blockchain can help me like finance myself or finance others and lower those barriers. 
I, I helped start Ujo Music, which was the first platform to automate royalty payments using smart contracts. I worked on a lot of new interesting token economic models like token bonding curves, curation markets, and just been trying to give a lot of feedback to people in that space. And today I am not coding as much. I do still stay up to date on what's been happening, but uh, I've actually been spending most of my past year writing. Uh, I've been writing a novel, Mm. so that's where I'm at at the moment. Hmm. Very cool. So you're a bit of a renaissance man in the crypto space, tech, art. Now you're writing. Cool. Um, so one of the things that we have really been driving home with our guests is <laughs> just 2020. What the fuck is going on? Um, <laughs> you know, I think... <laughs> <laughs> what do you ta- what do you mean, Carolyn? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I saw on Twitter yesterday that um 2020 is 50% complete. Only 50% complete? <laughs> right. I mean, it feels like a milestone, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, we should celebrate it. We're halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> um so I mean, what's What's been going on in South Africa? It's the same 2020, right? The, the virus is all over the world. There's global unrest. Like, I would love to hear if, if I don't know, it's any different down there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think the whole globe is experiencing some form of this pandemic. Um, well, maybe if you're like New Zealand that managed to steer away from this problem. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, South Africa went through like a few months of like, very hard lockdowns where I think it's one of the strongest lockdowns that happened. It was like you weren't allowed outside even to exercise. You could only go to get food or essentials. And, but then over time they eased up the economy. And like, as we're recording this right now in, you know, early July, it is the, uh, it's the worst cases, the most amount of new cases uh, being found now. So we're, we're in the thick of the problem as it is at the moment, I think like the top five worst countries. It's been definitely an interesting year. And and I think there's a lot of good and bad about it. I think it's a lot of good in terms of giving the world a sense of opportunity to go like, this is a pause to some extent. Well, we, we didn't necessarily want this pause. It definitely gives us this ability to go like, what is happening in the world? And like, what should we keep about the old world? And like, what should we make new? So at least there is some good there, but it's definitely hitting a lot of people very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, one thing I like about this time, and I think you're just rushing on that, Simon, is we're in this sort of, we're kind of locked in with the way things are. It's like, well, maybe not. Um, a lot of things seem to change real, real quick on a scale that seemed totally unimaginable. So mm. there's this sense that more is up for grabs than I think a lot of mm. us realized. Um, and things are just more yeah. plastic and have always mm. been. I actually have family in New Zealand, and, and you're right. The, <laughs> the virus is, it's, it's pretty much something that happened. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, What's the perception like of the United States and how we're handling this from where you're based? Yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, 
whatever happens in the US, you know, culturally, the, the rest of the world does get affected. And I think in, in South Africa, you know, having, having a, a very disgusting history of racial discrimination, what the sort of Black Lives Matter movement definitely made people sort of pay attention again to the injustices that currently still exist. Um, you know, it's like the, the, they called the military for the, the lockdown to ensure like stuff doesn't go, go haywire. And the military has killed people, you know, the military has killed people. And, and even in like egregious ways in South Africa during, during the lockdown period. And in, in America, what's happening there is that people saying enough is enough. And when America does that, the rest of the world gets courage to say the same. If America stands up for something, then that gives sort of this carte blanche for the rest of the world to also do the same. And it's been actually interesting because another thing as well about the whole sort of the issue of statues in, in America, because this was something that that happened in South Africa five years ago, four or five years ago, when the students started protesting like old colonial statues mm-hmm. close to the universities. And it was the same arguments that people make. I, it's just like, guys, this has already happened. Like, just go see what happened in South Africa, like where it ends. Like, don't even bother like saying the, all the arguments are the same. It's exactly the same arguments. So what was the history of these these figures and statues? These were colonialists. So, yeah, colonialists like like Rhodes was like he was this um, English um, colonialist that owned like half of Africa essentially, mm-hmm. and especially Southern Africa. And um, you know through what he's done in the past, like. Uh, he, he built this endowment so that people can go study at like specific universities and stuff like that. But for the most part, he's, he has a very strong and, and like negative history of colonialism. And so the people just say like, why, why, why is there these monuments of these people? We understand like his endowment is still paying for scholarships for students, but like, and it's exactly the same argument. People said like a monument is, is a, in public is a statement about what society should support. Mm-hmm. And if we're still supporting that, we haven't moved on from apartheid and colonialism. Essentially what was done is the statute got taken down and like put in a museum. And it's like, done, story's oh. over. So. That makes yeah. sense. Interesting. So one of these things that we've been, um, that we've been seeing around the protests is this idea of um, autonomous zones, right? The Chaz yeah. in Seattle has been a hot media topic. Curious, like, to get your take, because I know that you've done a lot of thinking about autonomous organizations. And what do you think the <laughs> promises of, you know, something like Chaz versus uh, the way that autonomous zones think- could be done in a more ideal sense? To yeah, clarify, I- we're not talking about Chaz in the normal way. It's totally different Chaz. <laughs> 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 yeah, I love what was or what has been happening with Chaz in Seattle. It, it's just been great and interesting to see. I, it's merely because I enjoy social experiments or community experiments and seeing how mm. people deal with it. Obviously, like, you know, you can't, you can't scale that to a city or, or a society at large because then you'll just recreate society. <laughs> but uh, as a small pocket experiment, like, I love it. I just like seeing people having these like microcosms of experiments and seeing how we can how we can learn from it, you know. And I think that's that's also why like I still like the blockchain space. It's 
it's saying to people like, look, you can't necessarily experiment with like new communities in the real space because the real space is it's um it's all been used up. Like it is it's like there's no there's like little opportunity left to experiment, you know, because we're almost eight billion people in the world. Like we're like to to experiment with that, say charter cities or things like that, it's much harder in twenty twenty than say earlier years in humanity. But mm the blockchain gives us that possibility to experiment with economics in a frontier that has no limit. You know, it's like there's no, no one's going to stop you from building a community currency in a online space. You know, you're not restricted in terms of, or there's at least less restrictions. So it's been fun. I, I, I enjoy what's happening there. It's not sustainable, but it's, but it's sometimes it's necessary to like shake things up a bit and like, do things differently. Mm. Do you guys have thoughts on what the minimum viable size is for an autonomous zone? Like, can it be a handful of people for a weekend? Can That's it? A question. That's a very good question. I think I think I think it probably scales with this the time it's supposed to be alive or like existing. Because you see, with Burning Man, it's like sure you can run an autonomous city with 60,000 to 70,000 people for a week, two weeks. I can promise you that all the good vibes that exist at Burning Man, if it lasts for a month, two months, three months, it won't be the same experience. Uh, Even on Sunday, Sunday, man, you're like, I gotta get out of here. I have to go to Italy yeah. Burger and like, yeah. yeah, I have depleted <laughs> all the love I could give to all my neighbors. <laughs> I want fences now i don't want to talk yeah. to my neighbors anymore like and, and then you, you've got examples of um when i'm thinking of, of chaz and other sorts of autonomous zones um i don't know if you've ever heard of christiania in mm, denmark mm. it's i think it's in Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah. i visited it but my sister was living there and i'm looking it up right now and i it's been in existence since 1971 but there's um, like up to only a thousand people so yeah Christiana is a, a good example. I've been there as well. It's like, it's oh, what I what I like about Christiania is like, and I think this is also some parts of like a European sensibilities towards like society as a whole, which is like, if these people aren't going to bother us, uh, it's going to be more trouble to stop them from doing what they're doing. Just let them be, you know, the same sort of approach that like Netherlands have towards marijuana or prostitution. It's like, mm-hmm. we'd, we, we won't be able to stop people from doing these things. So let's just help make it safe and more tolerable. Um, and the same with Christiania yeah. to see, to see that exists is like, great. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Cause I, I think the, the history of it is pretty similar to the Chaz. I mean, maybe less kind of contention in, in terms of the original standoff, but basically people mm. just occupied a space and like, the military, the, the police said, okay, we'll, we'll back out and, that's great i would i would kind of argue that like planet earth is a giant autonomous zone but we don't act like it is whoa man (laughs) (laughs) purple pills yeah Yeah. (laughs) well i mean you you make a good point about earth as society like i don't know if you guys have thought about like when people go to Mars, what society are they going to build? They're, it's a completely clean slate. 
you can start from scratch, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to build a democracy? Is Elon Musk going to be king of Mars? What's it going to be like? And obviously, initially, right. it'd yeah. just be like everyone is like buddy, buddy, because we're all scientists and explorers and pioneers here on Mars. And hmm. social relationships keeps the glue together. But like, obviously, when it gets bigger, there'll need to be some form of governance of the society. Like, what's it going to look like? And because it's a clean slate, you get to ask these questions. If you had to build like a new society right now, what would it look like? And like Mars is a good question, you know, because we get to ask that question now for a place like Mars. What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Don't know. All of your answers have such a sense of optimism. And that's always how I've known you. A bit of background. Simon and I were some of the first employees at Consensus. So we were very early Ethereum folk and always your work has been imagining, you know, what, what's possible in a very optimistic way. One of the reasons why 2020 can feel so dystopian is we've got this epidemic of irrational optimism. There are a vast majority of people or a lot of people out there that aren't thinking in structural, like real world solutions about how we fix some of these things. There's a lot to break down and a lot to build back up. And it's more like, oh, it's fine. The earth is healing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'd be curious to hear your take on why you think optimism is necessary and is good and can be rational. For a long while, that's maybe a bit more personal thing about my life is that I, I've always been optimistic, but I think a mistake I've made in the past is like confusing the lack of conflict for optimism, right? And I don't think that should necessarily be the case. Like sometimes people say things or they do things for the sake of optimism to like hide behind other things or, or, um, not pay attention to certain things that is happening, right? It's like a good example. You and your colleagues, there is some beef between the colleagues. Like if you're like, let's just be happy and spread the love, you're not resolving the problem. You're neglecting the real issues by sometimes not confronting certain things head on, but you can still be an optimist. You can still say like, guys, I think there's a better future here, but you need to sort your shit out. I think it's imperative as a society that we were trying to remain optimistic, but I think it's a, it's something that we have to practice like an exercise to be good at. That's a really smart distinction. Um, I think just kind of unpacking that more. I think kind of what you're just saying is like the dominant gesture is actually avoidance masked yes. as optimism. Um, yes. And yes. you could also argue that that kind of optimism is actually pessimistic that the real issue can be solved and the sort of more confrontational mode is you know optimistic that it can be yeah yeah i think that's a good way to put it like do not mask optimism as like under the pretense of avoidance you know like don't don't hide behind the problems and like don't pretend they don't exist yeah yeah i mean one thing carol and i have talked about is this concept of delusional optimism, which has definitely been the dominant, well, it's not working so well now, but this was definitely like the dominant mode of engagement. Um, I think the American society had with coronavirus of this like fully risk on 
business as usual, consumer focused economy happily marching into, <laughs> you know, uh, this pretty serious threat, right? There's something like really obscene in that spectacle, you know, going yeah. to buy like a cup of coffee and there's a biohazard tent nervously looking at the, you know, yeah. S&P 500 index, like kind of, <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. I, I, another area where we are going to start to see a lot more of that is uh, with environmental catastrophe. Um, and mm. I know that I think South Africa has seen a little bit more of this than maybe the United States has. I've heard you talk a bit about like the water crisis. Yeah, I mean, the the story of the drought in Cape Town was, it, it left me with a sense of optimism, <laughs> speaking of the topic of optimism. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I'm trying to figure out what parts of that story was a success and why we don't necessarily see the same things happening in like, say, how people approach a pandemic. So, so to give context to what happened about two years ago, there was like, after three years of drought, the city was very, very close to basically running out of water. Every year, the restrictions just got higher and higher until one year, which is like basically a panic. We're heading to day zero and day zero is when the taps run dry and everyone will have to go stand in queues to go collect water and you will get like a certain amount of liters per day. And that, that was like the reality we were heading towards. And the way that Cape Town managed to get out of that problem was through various um, various governmental things like increasing water tariffs, um, penalizing sort of egregious use of water. There were also like social um, social sort of norms that developed that was partly done also by the government. They actually published the maps that you could see which neighborhoods and like which homes were overusing water, like a look at them, they're abusing the water rights. And then there was also like social norms that people developed uh, outside of the government. People started sort of ostracizing or like um, sanctioning in quotes, people that weren't doing their part to save hmm. water. You know, there, there, was this, there was this sort of saying that went around during that time is like, you know, if... Uh, if someone's not saving water, don't have sex with them. <laughs> you know, I know it's like the social norm of like, if you're not doing this, then sorry, I'm not sleeping with you. Um, and so that it, it, it's like obviously that's a joke, but it was it was a re, it was a reality. Like that's the way these sort of sanctions worked. It's like government helping people to save um, water through these restrictions, but also society as a whole, like telling each other like we need to, you know, like do something about this because I don't think any of us want to see a society where we ran up, where we run out of water. Um, but they managed, we, we managed to get out of it. Like, but we got lucky because the following years, it has been good rain. And as I'm recording this, I'm looking at rain falling outside. Um, so it's, it's been, it, the city has been saved, um, so to speak, but we came very close to a disastrous scenario. And I think, What's been interesting to see is is like how people's behavior has changed irrevocably after this. Like hmm. it's been two or three years now since the drought. Capton still hasn't used as much water as it did even in, in in the peak days of pre-drought, like during the drought. And that's been good to see because a lot of people did things like installing water tanks, like 
building up habits of proper water usage that still remain today. I think almost everyone here is conscious about that. Like even for me, I wanted to have like less dirty plates of cutlery because it, I have to wash them constantly. And so what I did was I started using more like paper plates that could just be like recyclable paper plates. And I still do that today. Um, and I think that's part of what what we might see with this pandemic as well. Hopefully it's just like general trends towards a more decent public hygiene. But for some reason, uh, I was optimistic because I saw people taking a community or collective action approach to solving a problem like a water crisis. And now with like the pandemic, it's still like, why, why are so many people sort of not doing the basic steps to like ensure public health? And I, I, that's been sort of demoralizing in some sense. Um, but I guess it's been better in some countries, you know, mm-hmm. Asia has, has always been sort of communitarian um, and more collective focused and wearing right. masks is not even close to being a political issue at all. Right. <laughs> Whereas yeah. like the opposite end, like in America, it's like extremely politicized. And it's almost like a cultural factor, right? Um, You know, in terms of how connected do you feel to your fellow countrymen, how much of a sense of duty and responsibility? It's also just uh, familiarity with the solution. What is, quote unquote, the new normal? Like Asia, for example, I think part of it is also that they've um, experienced SARS and uh, these respiratory diseases for the past decade or more. Um, Yeah. So yeah, a lot of factors. Um, it's really interesting to hear all the, the anecdotes about the drought. Um, but I wonder, <laughs> don't you think it would have been better if there was a token involved? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, if this, I, it happened in 2017. You know, it was it was actually oh the best God. time for this. Oh my God. No, this is funny. <laughs> Somebody yeah. came up with a a, a drought token. Oh, that would have been. <laughs> and there's a token. It's diamond, man, it was all lined up for you. Right. <laughs> like a prodigal son like, comes home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like rise from the oceans. I've come to save you. Yeah, you've got like the solidity code kind of etched into the tablet. You got your big beard or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Standing on top of Table Mountain. I have arrived. (laughs) The orders will come if you only use this token. Liquidity. Liquidity. (laughs) Drum roll. It's it's the irrigation uh, piece of yield farming. It's coming in 2020. Yeah, totally overlooked. (laughs) um yeah crypto (laughs) but like like i don't like i i think there's there's been a lot of cases in crypto where like you have these people that that have the best of intentions and then like have this tool this hammer and then they think this is the best way to solve a problem and like a token for saving a drought is like seems absurd. It's like, guys, this is not this is not how we're going to solve the problem. But but <laughs> I still I still think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from how crypto networks form sort of communities and build value together that we can 
somehow transport to collective action problems that we face. Yeah. Could could we actually go back a few years, talk a little bit about ERC two zero? I think people forget that there there was like a pre-token era in Ethereum. Mm-hmm. There was a pre-tokenize the world in Ethereum. It was all smart contracts. And it was like, fuck, this is super complicated. How are all these things going to communicate with each other? Um, world computer, right? A different narrative. World computer. Every... <laughs> all compute is going to go through the EVM on planet Earth. Yeah, but no, can we can we talk a little bit about that? Like more innocent age, and then some of the work on ERC twenty. Man, I mean, I've I have this kind of like lame joke of of you pulling a drag on a cigarette with your scarf on and sunglasses. You know, ERC twenty. Baby, I haven't heard that name in years. There's some synth wave playing in the background, some noir. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> haven't heard that name in years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I guess this comes back to the topic of optimism as well. I think like pre-token era, pre-ERC20 era, like the initial months, years of Ethereum, there was this absolute massive sense of optimism. I at least worked in a space before Ethereum launched, right? So we were writing Solidity code and running mm-hmm. it on the, on the initial test nets and stuff like that. And we were just like so excited that, wow, this actually just, it just works. Like, um, and there was this like op- sense of optimism about what could become possible. And I think that's why like, I liked like engaging with a lot of people in the earlier days because of that. It was just sort of, these were sort of kindred spirits that like, didn't care about like whether we were going to make a lot of money or not, or whether we we would we just wanted to see things change in some capacity and like playing with new technology. Um, so that was really really great. Then like we had to start working on stuff when it launched. Like we actually had to <laughs> prove this this mattered. Um, and then um, my interest has always been initially about around tokens and tokenization and the ability for communities to empower themselves and through that was through forms of tokens and equity and and, and like shareholding and communities that kind of idea so my bit one of my big sort of first goals was to get tokens as a thing happening in ethereum and so i initially before erc20 there was like a standard called the metacoin standard but it was just like a proposed standard that vitalik made hmm. and then we once Ethereum launched uh, and some teams wanted to start doing things, I think Augur and Maker and Gnosis all wanted to use tokens for whatever reason. And we're like, okay, we need a standard. So after um, I, I wrote like the, uh, a Solidity code for the standard and then mm-hmm. at DevCon 1 in London at the end of, no, end of 2015, um, I presented there on tokens and the standard and then or the community there at the time was like okay guys like we need to do something about this now um because we don't want a situation where people are going to launch different standards and yeah. it's a mess and so fabian vogel steller um created the issue on ethereum and then we got discussing about the standards and there were a bunch of us working back and forth it took much longer than i thought it would 
But <laughs> I guess that was a good, I guess it was a good thing because what we ended up with was like a very simplified standard. Um, it was, uh, people tried doing different strange things with it. And obviously today, some of the decisions that we made weren't necessarily the best decisions, especially around sort of the approval, approving tokens and giving rights to people to access your tokens. Um, mm-hmm. But we, I think we did the best we could at the time without knowing how things were going, to, what, what was going to happen. And then obviously everything happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you had any sense that that sort of wave was possible so quickly in terms of the ICO boom? <sighs> Sometimes some things happen sooner than I expect them to happen and some things take much longer than I expect them to happen. Like I remember at the DEFCON 1 in 2015, the whole Ethereum Foundation was like, next year we're going to have Casper and Proof of Stake. And it's, <laughs> it's like, it's the middle of 2020 and we're still here, you know. So that took much longer and still taking time. Um, and the tokens as well, that especially like ICOs as a thing, like, that just blew me away. Uh, it yeah. it got much bigger than I thought it would initially. Um, and at the time, like I didn't believe it was the right approach to do sort of building projects. Some some it worked for some projects, but like as we know now, like uh, probably ninety percent of the ICOs back then doesn't mm-hmm. exist anymore in any reasonable yeah. capacity. Um, but yeah, no, it was very interesting. Very interesting, in, interesting time. And you know, I still think what could still come is still might pale in, in comparison to what we have now. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any any takes on DeFi yield farming? Kind of where mm. the Ethereum community has developed most in the past couple of years. Mm. I, I, I think DeFi is really cool. I, I really like what's happening in the space. It's just, there's a, there's, there's an additive, like multiplicative value in emerging behavior. Like once mm-hmm. this new thing crops up, it can engage in this thing in a new capacity. And just like these different layers keep adding up and like building more complexity and like interesting new things. And they start affecting each other, like, if this protocol does liquidity mining or like yield farming, then it affects this one through its interest rates. It's just this very interesting like Rube Goldberg machine. It's just interesting to watch. What I what I don't like though, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but like I don't I don't necessarily think that all these governance tokens make sense in a long term scale. Um, Mostly because, um, like, unless they've built in behavior to work against, like, market capture, over time, you know, capital come in, and if there's value in owning these governance tokens, they will start buying them up and starting to coerce or potentially manipulate parts of the system. That is sort of a, a risk to Ethereum as a whole. Like, the owners of these governance tokens, right, in DeFi have an implicit power to decide Ethereum's future. Because if Ethereum decides to do like a contentious fork, the questions will be, what's Maker going to choose? What's Mm -hmm. Compound going to choose? And if you're the owner of a governance token, 
you kind of, that's where you will have your say. Like if I own parts of yeah. Compound or parts of Maker, my voice now counts because Ethereum relies on these projects. And so there's this additional vector of security threat. Um, that's not just a security threat for the protocols themselves, but also for Ethereum as a whole. You could start eventually manipulating things unless they've built in mitigation efforts to stop these things from being coerced. So that that's like my only worry over time, over like a longer term scale. For now, it's just sort of iterate. The whole space is blowing up. Funds are flowing in and everyone's sort of happy because like, you know, hashtag yield farming and what have you. But um, everyone's sort of not necessarily talking about these longer term scale risks. Yeah. Well, yield farming is the new Farmville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think are some of the larger decision points or, you know, issues around which there could be a contentious fork in the future over the next couple of years? A good example for me was the prog pow issue, which is for those who don't know, they want to change the hashing algorithm of the proof of work in Ethereum to keep it cater towards GPUs and avoid ASIC miners from coming in. Um, I think that's like a, that was like a contentious thing where it's just like from an outsider's perspective, you don't know and necessarily understand the incentives of the different players involved and what they might be saying to convince you otherwise. Like the GPU people might say, we need to do this for the sake of decentralization. And then they'll have good arguments for that. And then the ASIC people will say the same thing and have different arguments. So it's like, who do I trust? And so I need to go then form my own opinion, which takes time. We might still find ourselves in a position where some government actors might start interfering in some capacity and we'll have to decide what to do. Um, on a smaller scale, like a good example was... Um, is like, what's like the ethical responsibility of miners or like those that secure the network for like what happens on the network because like traditionally we would just say they just run infrastructure right yeah. but what recently happened there was like a an exploit on some exchange which meant that the hacker could not access the funds but they could send a transaction right to whitelisted addresses so what they could do is they then up the fee of the transaction to like millions of dollars right in order to blackmail the exchange. Now, the, the miners that mine this fee, right, know that this was like blackmail. And now the mining pool distributes the fees towards the miners. Now you're going like, is it ethical to accept that if it's a clear use case of blackmail, <laughs> you know? And it brings about very interesting ethical questions that I think might, on a longer term scale, start making people question to what extent they... They might not be like legally complicit, but they might be ethically complicit to what's happening. And to what extent will people decide like, no, you know what? Like I will choose to run with this fork of Ethereum that explicitly rules that this is egregious behavior. We'll see. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'm actually surprised that we haven't seen more of the sort of hardcore 90s um <laughs> Like, like I haven't seen or even heard of an assassination market on Ethereum, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and if we actually start seeing stuff like that, I think these issues are really going to become difficult, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
there's this like I, everyone. I, I mean, I keep hearing, you know, like you know, you can build apps that can't be evil, but you could also build apps that are unstoppably evil potentially. Yes, yes, and I think that that sort of while everyone is still enjoying building this utopian thing, like it's going to grow to a scale where like we will have to ask these tough questions at some future point. Um, can we talk about memes? um so yeah mimetic currency and it's just it's so fascinating right now um as people are feeling more and more alienated from current systems and uh cultural hegemony and this whole concept of the byzantine dream right the sense of um you know we're, we're all waking up Mimetic language seems to be something potentially promising. You know, what's your take on that? And like, how have you thought about it in the context of blockchains? Mm. Uh, I love this topic. <laughs> I think like I, 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 when I usually tell people on like a longer introduction, like why I care about blockchains, one story that actually is very important to me and like meaningful to me. And I think I will always remember it. It's like the first time I discovered Dogecoin. You know, it's like the end of the end of 2013. Um, I was I was finishing up my master's degree. Um, I I all I knew is I wanted to work in a crypto space. Didn't know how, but I convinced my parents to allow me to move back home. And so I was sitting there in the attic and. I was just browsing around the web as usual, and then I saw Dogecoin, and I was like, "Wait, is this? How is this? How is this possible? Like, there's no technical innovation here. Like, it's literally just Litecoin with the face of a funny dog, right? <laughs> and then suddenly, it, it had like a hundred million US dollars market cap in the middle, like out of nowhere, and I was just like." I had to question everything. I was like, why does this work? Why does this work? And then it came to me like from the heavens, I had this download where I just <laughs> literally felt dizzy where I went like, wait, are you telling me that currencies are actually just ways for people to form like a focal point around coordination? And if at the center of it is a meme, then can we use this to make almost any currency that that we can think of. Like any meme that we have can basically have some form of value around it. Like why don't we copy paste Dogecoin and make it for everything? Like Catcoin, which did exist back in the day, Kitty Coin, Penguin Coin, like just do all of these things and see which ones capture value. And I still think that argument is true today. It's just about finding the right economics for that to work. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing. Like if all memes could suddenly have value, some form of like actual tangible value, not social capital or something like that. Like, no, like this meme is worth hundred dollars and you could own this meme, like that concept, like literally mm -hmm. memes have value. And I don't know, the world will look much weirder if that's a reality. Um, but I also, again, like as is the case, what I saw in that was the ability for more people just to earn a living if that was the reality. Yeah. But that sort of mass marketized 
democratization of everything, of all knowledge and culture and everything. It's like, ugh, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> that, right. that in itself is the, is the Byzantine fever dream. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of an acceleration-esque, like dark twinge to yes. that in some sense. Yeah. Um, I found a way to make my heart into an ERC 721 <laughs> because I can't find another way to get a sandwich for lunch. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like like mass marketization. It's like, mm, maybe not too, too good an idea. No, yeah. It's funny. I remember I was at like a, IOT conference in Santa Clara in like 2017 on like a panel with like Bill Ty and Dan from MetaMask. And Dan was like, Simon is doing this crazy research and he's found a way to monetize all memes. Like months later, I. Yeah, that was. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny because like at that point in time, like I was I was like doing a lot of token economics research, like going into my own rabbit holes. And um yeah, one of the ideas I called meme markets. But yeah. like the the problem it was still like the same goal, which is like let's figure out a way our communities can build value. And this sort of extrapolation of that was it it, it was going to be built around ideas, like Let's build because that's how people congregate. They congregate around ideas, whether it's interest in like a football club or like Ethereum or what have you. Um, so it's like, wait, it's just all memes, right? Yeah. But I remember speaking with Dan then. It's like I had a few. I I've, I sent that paper to like twenty to thirty people, mm. and Dan was amongst them. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. He was definitely like a wave is coming, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 still, I still, I still believe that to some extent, but it's totally, like, like yeah. We, it's it's about finalizing like the economics of of it, which eventually led to me designing token bonding curves and like the start of continuous token models. At least it had like a good outcome. Sometimes yeah. you have to push buttons in weird ways. So it's just random anecdote. Like I, I, yeah. I did act acting in university, like amateur theater. Oh, cool. And I like, remember trying trying to do that, and like my director telling me one day, okay. You're gonna rehearse this this the play, but you're gonna go just be as absurd as possible, most extreme as possible, kiss as deeply as possible, like shout your lines, just be as angry as possible, be as sad as possible, just push to the extremes. And what that helped was when you push the extremes, then you know like what where you actually need to be in the middle, mm. because if you're just fumbling around here in the middle, like you don't know exactly where to push in the right direction. But if you open up the map of possibility space, like you did things as extreme as possible, you kind of know where the middle ground is. So that's why it's sometimes valuable just to be as weird as possible. Like, don't worry about like pushing the button too far, because once you've traversed that like knowledge space, you know what the middle ground looks like. What's an effective middle ground? You just, totally. you just well, map things out more. Yeah, well, you actually like create the middle ground, and you actually define the context that stuff gets set in. Mm. It's yeah. the it's like a trash fence. Yeah, does it work? <laughs> so maybe DeFi is doing the right the trash thing. Trash fence for the mine. They're going all the way out <laughs> yeah. to the trash fence. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so you remind? So I actually want to tag it because I've had some of these same thoughts. I think the best thing that's come out of Bitcoin or any of this so far is to plant the seed that was planted in your brain about like, oh my God, money 
works this way, right? It's not this mm. thing beamed down from the heaven. In 2013, 2014, I thought, okay, money is what it is. It's not going to change. And then mm. you get this intervention that, oh, actually, here's this totally other form of money, right? And you're seeing people buy in or enroll or come into agreement that, oh yeah, this can be a valid form of money. The example of seeing that happen with Bitcoin is really powerful. Bitcoin puts on display the sort of made upness of mm. <laughs> money and by yeah. extension, a lot of yeah. other stuff. I think it's yeah. like super, super powerful in that way. Right. But the other thing I guess I want to tag here is our, our existing modes of community making really so broken and so unimaginable that we have to go to these lengths to come up with these alternatives. Um, I was talking with my girlfriend last night and in like in the U S with coronavirus, for instance, um, there's just like, there's no sense in this. Generally, there's not a clear sense of community in this country, right? It's, Mm. Um, there's not a sense of like, we're in it together. We're pooling our resources. We're supporting each other. Like on a, on a deep down level, that's kind of what's going on. But the, like, you know, at the surface level, what you feel is you're on your own. And if you don't work hard and don't have money, you're going to die. If you walk around San Francisco and particularly, man, I mean, that's really what you feel. It's like this total, yeah, children of men, tent city, mm. hoverboard situation. There are two sides to the coin. There's like, a, there's sort of like the, the beautiful, wow, everything's liquid and we can change stuff side. But then there's also the like, oh man, is the default thing that we're inheriting, do we just have to totally abandon ship? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I've been more on the abandoned ship side, but... Yeah, it's a. I it's. I've been. Th- I've been thinking about it a lot as well. Um, and I, and I think they said about like going to the extreme directions. You know, I was like very deep in like crypto is going to help us solve a lot of like community problems. To like swinging a bit back more to the middle and saying, wait, like I think we actually also have to do just a lot of like hard, like in real life analog work to building our communities, right? Like speaking to your neighbors, um, building either geographical or topical communities, that takes work. You just, you just have to put in to build people and, and like make them care about each other. And I also believe like we can still innovate there. Like, I, I think there's this sense that people, people think like, wait, no, like we can't socially innovate anymore. Anything that's been invented in social sciences or like working together has been done. It's like, no, like, we can still design new forms of governance systems, like new ways to care about your communities, build communities up in new ways, like different institutions or like different ways to do that. I, I do think like that there are two larger trends that have made that thing kind of disappear, which is one is the general sort of rise of the welfare state. Because in the past, the way you survived hardships was through your communities, like these sort of fraternities Mm -hmm. and like local communities that when you had tough times, your community came to care for you, right? Um, And that's how we all like share risk. Like insurance was even done in the same way, right? Um, And then with this sort of slow build up of the welfare state, it became more a question of like, should we still have these community organizations and so you lose that sort of reliance on your local community to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other trend, I think, which is 
the, the internet itself. Like this made us not have to rely on our local communities for our social connections, right? Like I live in my apartment and I don't know my neighbors. And well, in the past, like before the internet, you would definitely know more of your neighbors. Like mm. your world was more segmented to your geographical space. Um, and then the internet blew that up. Like I, I'm talking to you guys, you're my friends, you know, yeah. but I'm sitting in Cape town, you know? <laughs> so like that changed everything. And so that's definitely a good thing. Like we, we, we could build these new communities across time and space in, in different ways. But what it meant that is we did lose some of our reliance or need to build global communities. Like I don't necessarily have such a strong need to engage with my neighbors. Like I'll be fine without them, you know? And I think that those two things, I think changed that the floor fell out of communities globally as a result. Um, so yeah, that's why I still feel like it, it, it is important that we still invest in, in like local communities. But I think the pendulum will change though. I think we're part of a generation that grew up with the internet and, and the joy that freedom brought us like, I still remember being a teenager and going online and reading these forums and like suddenly being able to have this ability as a kid down in Cape town to talk to an American. It's like, wow, this is amazing to having that freedom. But then living in the era that we live now, where it just feels like everything is online. Like there's a distinction between real life and online anymore. Like back in those days you had offline life and online life. Now, like everything is online, always online. Mm. And that changed our perspective of what our village or our tribe is like our village or our tribe or community is the one you see in your social feed. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy. And I think like there will be some kind of reckoning coming mm -hmm. in terms of like the public mental health, that extreme access to always online information does to us yeah. in the same way that people, people eventually went against like the damages of public smoking. Right. Um, and so yeah. in the same capacity, I think over time, people would just be like part of your regime as like a healthy person is like, I take care of my physical health. I take care of my mental health and I need to take care of my social health, which is what I'm exposing myself to on a daily basis online. Yeah. Yeah. Carolyn had this great formulation where we were talking like even six months ago that I remember of like you know, and maybe like the forties through the seventies, you had this era of everyone moving into the cities and then, you know, not quite doing it right. And people eating white bread and making their house right next to, you know, the power plant and, you know, everyone getting these sort of physical diseases, right. That can, would come out of this. And it's kind of like, we're moving to the new um, digital metropolis, right. Or connected metropolis. So we're getting like brain diseases. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. And, <laughs> that's nice. I love that metaphor. Yeah, I know illness. it's good, right? That's why. <laughs> it, it's my sort of my illness epoch theory, where you know, before the fifties, you can take a look at industrialization, and that was like tuberculosis and these diseases of just humans being in too close physical contact with each other. You know, like yeah. cholera, and then humans figured that yeah. out, and then yeah, you get sort of these new. Um, chemicals uh, of modern living that you know, gave people cancer, yeah. people live too close to the power plant. Yeah. And uh, I think we're just, I mean, my background is, is like psychology, sociology. So I worked for a while 
in the mental health field. And it's crazy uh, the amount of um, pathological uh, classifications just Mm. grows and expands and changes every year. We didn't see things like Mm. autism uh, before the 70s and uh, Mm. so many different ways of being anxious, depressed. Yeah, I definitely think it's going to be one of the challenges Mm. of this upcoming era. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's also like something to touch upon the topic of the pandemic as well. One of the reasons why I feel like the internet feels more awful in this year, mm. right? Which is because more people are just actually spending time online because they're what else are they doing? They're forced to sit in their homes, right? And so you have people that have that used to enjoy like a full, healthy offline life, like now suddenly get sucked into online life and subjected to like the the damaging effects that all this information can have on people mm-hmm. or like the social dopamine of what's happening it's like now we just have more people that are online and just aren't familiar with online public health so to speak <laughs> oh totally dude i've seen people in my news feed talk about drinking bleach and like literally like like i'm gonna drink bleach and get light therapy and sound therapy and that's going to cure me of coronavirus i feel like in the 90s there was like the online life and like the offline life right and this is the sort of wired magazine (laughs) sort of cyberspace cyberspace and super super space highway (laughs) yeah the super information highway but I, i always think of like so like the matrix is kind of like the canonical movie about that in some ways but now I'm trying to think what's the right metaphor. I think it's people actively walking around in like the matrix ruined real world with with like AR into the matrix. So they're (laughs) they're in both places at once. I mean, that's the meme about like red pilled, blue pilled, you know, Simon here was doge pilled. Like, (laughs) yeah, is that your (laughs) pill? Doge build. Mm, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I think more oh people need goodness. to be doge build. Right. <laughs> Radicalized by Dogecoin. Such wow. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly the whole world is sponsoring like Jamaican bobsled teams. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good society. I like that. Oh my God. Wild. Well, it feels like maybe we're wrapping up here. It's been a bit of time. Yeah, I think the important thing, as we touched upon a lot in this in this podcast about optimism and dreaming and stuff like that, is that I would still implore people to, you know, don't be afraid to step over the that precipice of the Byzantine dreams, you know, and try to invent new strange things. Yeah. Byzantine lifestyle worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> 2020. <laughs>